I am aware of the consequences. I just accept those consequences, whether it be charged and run over by a ball or, or getting shot. I've acknowledged it. I'm okay with what I'm about to do because it's the right thing to do or I think it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. Mentoring Task Force One found itself in a pretty intense firefight around the village of Derapet. This was a really, really tough fight. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with two distinguished guests making return appearances on the show. Stay tuned for later in the podcast, where I speak with Major General John Cantwell about his memories of the Battle of Derapet and Dan Kieran, who is my first guest today. Daniel Kieran VC is the 99th Australian to receive the Victoria Cross, our nation's highest award for bravery. Dan served in the Australian Army, 6 RAR, for a decade, deploying twice to Malaysia, once to Timor, once to Iraq, and twice to Afghanistan. In his first Afghanistan deployment, he drove Bushmasters outside the wire with the Special Operations Task Group. In his second deployment there, Corporal Dan Kieran served in a traditional infantry role as a mentor for the Afghan National Army. On 24 August 2010, he performed a series of selfless and heroic actions in the Battle of Derapet, for which he was awarded the VC. Jared Crash McKinney lost his life during this battle, and various awards for bravery and gallantry were given out. Dan received the VC in November 2012. I first spoke with Dan in Season 3, in number 43, Dan Kieran, VC. I knew I had to do something. If I didn't, they were going to die. We recorded that interview in October 2018, and it was released in February 2019. In that first interview, Dan and I talked a bit about his upbringing, covered his various military deployments, Derapet, and the life-changing day he was bestowed the Victoria Cross. Since that conversation, Dan has written his autobiography, Courage Under Fire, published the same day as this podcast. In full disclosure, Dan's autobiography is published by Pan Macmillan, my employer, and I was Dan's editor on the book. You can buy your copy online now, or in a bookstore near you. I brought Dan back on the show to talk about his book and the fascinating new insights and revelations it offers about his life. Dan, welcome back to Life on the Line. Alex, look, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for inviting me back again. I do remember that uh, fondly, our last uh, our last podcast sit down together. I, uh, I was selling my house at the time and the place was uh, pretty much empty and we're <laughs> sitting in there in the living room table setting up. So mate, a pleasure to be back on the show again. And as soon as we wrapped up, you were madly getting out the vacuum cleaner to quickly clean off the rest of the house, blow the leaves out the back garden, I had to chuff off quickly because the real estate agent was popping over minutes later. <laughs> Knocking on the door. It's like, mate, time's up, get out. <laughs> well, Dan, let's go right back to where it all started for you, where the book kicks off. 
Tell me about the day you met your father. Yeah, look, goodness. I, uh, that's the thing, right? We're putting a book out now, all these, all these stories and sort of taking me back down memory lane. I remember my dad rocking up and he was in a wife beater singlet, faded, stained, stubby shorts, the type you just can't buy anymore. I remember my mum saying, you know, he'd, he'd just got out of hospital. He checked himself out of hospital and he rocked up with a heap of dogs, caravan. He, he'd just been shot in fact, and decided to check himself up and, and rock up to our place in Mulaney. And here's this, you know, six foot tall, six foot three tall sort of bloke, massive unit that I'd never sort of met before, standing in the doorway going, good day, knackers, I'm, I'm your dad. Yeah, look, it was certainly something that I'll never forget. And he uproots you and your family, you move up to Lowmead. And we talked a bit before in the last chat about sort of the tough conditions you experience there, but it's a complete overnight life change. You're enjoying the lifestyle, fishing in the river with your grandfather, your older sister Susan's got a great swimming passion interest going, and then just it's bam, not literally overnight, but in a way overnight, your whole life just changes. Look, absolutely. And it was quick. It was actually a really quick turnaround. So my, my dad had worked his magic on my mom and, and convinced her that this is a good idea and a good option to move to Lowmead. I look back down, I've spoken to my mom about it just recently, and the time frame from him turning up to us moving was was very quick. So he, he had obviously done his work on my mum very well and managed to convince her that, that was a, a good course of action to, to uproot the family and, and to take off. So, you know, I do remember she chased him away for a bit. So a couple of weeks there, it was like, get your dogs and, and your noise and, and get out of here. And he took off up to Lowmead first and, and then we joined him. So, mate, it was, yeah, look, it was a, a whirlwind at that point in time in my life. And you join him in the tin shack with dirt floors, no mains power. And also you have a new kind of garden to attend to. <laughs> that's right. I was the eight. That's the thing, right? You're not sure what to include, what not to include when you start writing about your childhood and, and, and about yourself. And at that point in time, it was, it was probably uh, 18 months before I was introduced to uh, tending the garden. It really was a, a shock to the system of, you know, waking up in the morning and you could turn the tap on or, or turn the power on for that matter to this shed. And it was a shed. It was it was rusted corrugated iron and it was dirt floors and it was a, one of those blue tarps that you can purchase for a couple of dollars from Bunnings and that was home. And as you mentioned, yeah, not long after that, here I am uh, watering these dope plants for him. And when you're watering that dope crop, does that give you, and you're 11 years old at the time, so does that give you an insight? This is maybe connected to why he was shot or, you know... <laughs> I certainly hadn't made those connections. I think as just as a kid, I think I was just happy to be, be around my dad at that point in time. You know, here's this this human I never had much interaction, had no interaction with, let's be honest. And then, then he's on the scene and I think it was just a novelty at that point in time to have someone around that was my dad. In the book, you mostly refer to him by the nickname Cowboy. In our first chat, in doing my research about you, I came across a reference that your father ran rodeos, and I brought that up and we talked about that, and you addressed that sort of general perception in the book, and that just simple one-sentence description might paint a slightly different picture to reality of the character that was your father. <laughs> Character's an understatement, mate. But he was. He was that person that brought community together, and he certainly brought the community of Lomi together at that point in time, and he would host events and do events, and he was that, that focal point of a little town. He would ride, or he used to ride, I should say, bulls and that when he was younger. And it's still obviously like that lifestyle and the type of people that are associated with that. So, you know, he was that focal point for the community. So he was a, he was a cowboy still, but, a, you know, he absolutely just a, a loose unit, let's be honest. You're the kind of bloke that just takes things in stride as they come and just deal with what is the situation in front of you. And my interpretation is that comes a lot from your childhood. Just you keep having surprises thrown at you going, right, okay, just got to deal with this how I've got to deal with this. Your father, though, he had that kind of influence on you. Yes, there were certain things. He uprooted your life, took your sister away from swimming, that kind of thing. 
but he also actually gave you a kind of upbringing lifestyle that in a way was a natural fit for pre-military training? It certainly suited what I was about to do. It really did. I talk about resilience often and where that stems from. And for me, uh, that was my baptism of fire at that point in time in my life, the highs, the lows, the going without the, I suppose, disappointments, dealing with disappointments of promises broken. I associate all those things of, of that time in my life. And I suppose that's enabled me to to look at my military service in that light of the world's a complicated place and things don't always go to plan and there's going to be disappointments. And that resilience was certainly forged in me from that point in time in my dad. Well, your dad is, I keep using the word character, but he certainly is a very interesting human being. And the book covers the sort of range of ways he impacts your life shenanigans. and other shenanigans. Yep. yep. <laughs> it is interesting sort of tracking that arc from your childhood and then years later when you're having the VC pinned on your chest, there's a great photo in the book of the Kieran family united again and your dad in this suit bought at the last minute to scrub up for the ceremony. He rocked, okay, you're right. He rocked up to the investor show. This is years later. This is 2012, obviously. You know, rocked up again, probably in a singlet on the plane and shorts. And uh, I told him he needed a suit. He didn't even come with a suit or anything. So I had to pull the credit card out and go and buy him clothes to come along to the investiture like that's just typical ian rocking up no i you know i gave him a pre-warning as to what it was what it was all about and he just did his own thing then expected all these things to happen you know that's just the type of person that he was just made it happen let's move on from ian cowboy kieran and talk about your grandfather alan pyburn Tell me about his World War II service. Yeah, look, absolutely. So we, it's no secret by now that he truly was the, the father figure in my life growing up. He was my motivation for joining defence. He was my hero as a kid. Without a doubt, without his guidance, who knows where I would have potentially ended up in life. So he didn't really open up to me about his service until I, in fact, had started the process to enlist into the Australian Army. For many, many years, I didn't even realise that he was a veteran until one day that he showed me his medals. And I was was probably nine or 10 years old, even at that point in time. So it was late, late in sort of my knowing of him that he opened up to me about his service. And it wasn't truly until I'd signed the line to join Army, that sign on the line to join Army, that he'd spoken about his service, in fact, of the highs and lows a man goes through. And what I mean by that, it was, you know, a, a certain incident that he, he recalled of shelling. So he was an artillery sergeant in the Second World War. Before that, he was part of the militia. He spoke about shelling uh, his own troops or French, the French troops. And obviously to, to that day, you know, he was something that was still in his mind and you know, something that he was very, very upset about still all those years later. Until that point in time, I feel as if I hadn't even really known him. And then all of a sudden, because I'm, I'm going down a certain path, that being defence, he starts opening up to me about what he'd been through and what his, his experiences were. And look, he really did shape me and enable me to, to make up my own mind for what core that I was going to do in defence. But he, he did think that I was very suited or would be very suited to infantry. Probably not before going to Lomead, but certainly after Lomead and the experiences that I'd had up there as a kid. He goes, you know, he goes, Dan, grandson, yeah, you'll do all right. You'll do all right, son. Besides the military aspect, though, because, yes, he buys you a rifle for your 11th birthday and he teaches you other important things, too, from fishing to a strong moral code. I do underpin my personal ethos and certainly will core values anyway uh, do stem from my grandfather's way of doing things. Without a doubt, he is instrumental in how I've turned out and some of the thought process that I have. And some of that stems from, no doubt, his time in defence as well. And he's just passed that on through what his experiences were. So I do very fondly look back at our our time together and and very, very much would say that he is the reason I am the way that I am. and, And that's a good thing. 
speaking about the way that you are, we see from actions from Derapet to others in your military career, you are very team focused and are conscious of how you can make the right contribution, protecting your mates. And I think you've had very selfless instincts from an early age. You describe in the book when you're a teenager, the incident with the bull and your mother. I had forgotten about that nearly actually. And then, you know, I, as you do, and you start investigating <laughs> your past to, to write something of this nature. I, you know, I remember speaking to my mom and she goes, you're, you're going to remember that. And I did, but I, it's one of those things where I do remember I had this little pony Benny B that I, a shit of a horse that thing was, it used to throw me, try and buck me off, try and bite me. But it, it was <laughs> a horrendous little pony. But I remember charging little Benny B in front of this this bull that was charging my mum, she'd frozen. She was riding a quarter horse, so you know, some sort of fifteen hand, sixteen hand high sort of horse. So, you know, relatively large horse. And here I'm on this tiny little pony and I do remember digging my heels into his flanks and leaping him forward and yelling out at the top of my lungs as this bull is lying my mum up and, and charging through the scrub straight at her. And she was just frozen there. But I don't know, that's just what I did, right? It's a kid protecting his mum. That's the thing. It's just what you did, which is similar to how you comment on Derapet, you saw oh got to do something here, got to go run in a hail of bullets so I can distract them from firing on my mate who's been injured. It's just, it's an interesting parallel there to observe. Yeah, I don't know. It's an act, it's a decision to a number of courses of action. One, to do something, two, nothing, or I suppose three, to run away. And I'm certainly not going to run away. But for that situation with my mum, I, I remember seeing her there and her inaction, I, I think, spurred action on in me. Luckily enough, at that in that instance, the, the bull it didn't continue because it would have completely cleaned me up on my little pony and her to boot. So I don't know, Matt, I think I've certainly been lucky throughout the years with some of the decisions I've made. There's certainly risks associated with those decisions and the outcomes. It's not as if I don't think about the outcomes. I, I am aware of the consequences. I just accept those consequences, whether it be charged and run over by a ball or, or getting shot. The difference is, is I can make that assessment quite quickly on the fly, I think. Well, I do. And I accept the consequences. I go, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I'm going to get shot and hopefully get thrown on a chopper. If I don't, I'm going to die. Not what I want to happen, but I've accepted it. I've acknowledged it. I'm okay with what I'm about to do because it's the right thing to do or I think it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. One more question about low meat and then we'll move on to some more army stuff. Courage Under Fire paints such a vivid picture of your early life. There's a lot of humour in it. There's adversity. I'll get to the reason I'm asking this particular question, but can you tell me about the process in your early days of low mead of having a hot shower, how that simple thing that so many of us take for granted, what that actually involved? Early on, mate, it was like going camping. Just remember, you know, going camping. The shower that we had, so we used to, yeah, used to cut wood and heat up a bloody uh, drum. I think it might have even been a keg that had been cut down, actually. So no doubt knowing my dad, he probably stole the keg from somewhere and then uh, cut it open with an angle grinder and used it to heat water. But, uh, you know, we used to heat water up and it was one of those canvas showers with a, a brass head on the end of it that if you screwed it too far one way, it, you know, the water wouldn't come out, flow at a, a rapid rate if you went the other way. So I think they still have those showers in the army. So... <laughs> It made it was. It was that was that was life. It was life, yeah. Just heat up your own water, lug the keg of it up, pour it into the thing, get ready to go and clean just normal, mate. Just normal. Yeah, just normal. Mate. Just normal. <laughs> I think that's a really important lesson though, that you've come from that field and then come out into wider Australia. Like when you join the army, you start you get put up in a hotel, you spend your first time on the escalator when you're seventeen. I know you're right, mate. <laughs> trip down memory lane absolutely even you know even coming into the city into brisbane for the first time and on the bus from the or the train station coming in and then walking to uh to answer it at that point in time where the recruitment center was and looking up at the skyscrapers going i'm, I'm a small and significant little thing in this massive city the change from 
a bush kid to grow up in a city to traveling the world. I think it's kind of healthy perspective as well. You've come from this kind of socioeconomic backdrop and then you don't take things like that for granted in life going forward. And that's well beyond the city kid versus bush kid kind of mentality. Mate, look, look even the VC, the action itself and then the getting bestowed with a, the highest honour and award in Australia's honours and awards system. I have said this and, and will continue to say this, one day in my life does not define me and will not define me. Dan, I mentioned in the intro your range of deployment experiences and other times overseas and from Timor to the Battle of Derapet. And we've talked about them on this podcast before and you cover them in even more depth with even more stories in your autobiography. So I'm not going to go over old ground here or reveal too much new stuff from the book. So listeners go out and buy it. Someone's got to read it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can't but tell you everything. <laughs> one quick anecdote from your army days I do want to cover are your applications to join the SAS. Well, what's to tell there? I, uh, mate, I, I wasn't good enough. As simple as that. That's a bit harsh. <laughs> well, mate, you got to realize you got to realize that as well. I, I had an opportunity to go and do the actual selection process and I took a trip over that. So probably when I was fit, motivated and, and in the right headspace and probably the best opportunity of me successfully completing or at least, you know, been in that mindset of doing it, I never look back and going, I should have, would have, could have. But I, if I had have gone ahead with that process at that point in time, it would have been a very, I would have put myself at the best possible opportunity to succeed. I didn't, I took a trip instead to Afghanistan. So I decided to take the guaranteed trip at that point in time, working with special forces instead. And I, look, I made that decision, one, because it was a guaranteed trip. Two, it was an opportunity to work with an organization that I was looking to join as well. So it was a bit of, let's, let's have a look first and, and also experience that and who doesn't want to go overseas. So I was always putting my hand up for wanting to go on a deployment. Mate, I love that shit. So didn't do it. I pulled the application, took the trip instead. And then I had a sequence of injuries Unfortunately, I was having fasciotomy, so I needed a compartment syndrome and I needed surgery. I had a complex tear in the knee and the meniscus that needed a clean out. Dislocated left and right and left and right shoulder again a number of times. Fortunately, I didn't have any back injuries, but it got to the point by my last trip to Afghanistan in 2010, where I still had that mindset of wanting to do it. And I trained, let's be honest, trained as much as I could whilst being very busy operationally. My body just wasn't up for it. I tried to go for the barrier one more time and I wasn't looked after. When I say I wasn't looked after by defence, I wasn't looked after by my company at all. They knew that I'd been training and I hadn't had the best preparation for it. However, I was relatively fit and had done a little bit. They decided to send me out in the jungle for two weeks training in the jungle before, before doing so. So here I am, all my conditioning that I'd gone through, everything that I'd been through, sent me out in the jungle for two weeks in uh, Kanangra, which I really didn't need to do, and then injured myself, a minor injury on my knee again during that two weeks. And I, I knew I was kidding myself, but I thought, you know what, I can't keep on putting this off. I've got to have a crack. I remember jumping on the bus and going to Singleton for the, the entry test. It was during, I think it was a 3.2, could have even been the 2.4 now. I can't remember exactly what distance it was, the, the run with webbing and everything on. I reckon the first kilometre, I was, I was feeling pretty good. Then my knee started hurting and started swelling up as I'm running. I'm like, this is, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding myself. This is not going to happen. I think at one point I even started walking. I'm like, this is just, I was kidding myself to even think after having an injury to put myself through this and the preparation was terrible. But it came to a realisation at that point in time where, I'd done only a decade. I'd done a decade in defence. This is the one thing that I wanted to do. I'd, I'd always put my hand up. I'd done what was required. I'd been a team player. And then I came to the realisation that, you know, my company at that point in time, or individual in particular, who set me up field and then didn't particularly look after my career or my aspirations, wasn't a team player at all. And therefore, I had put myself out for everyone else. But, you know, they hadn't looked after me with the one thing that I really wanted to do. I mean, the onus is on me, of course. But I, I looked at that point in time in my career and thought, 
uh, look, it's, I think it's time to transition out of defence. I think that was sort of the, the nail in the coffin for me as well of it might be time. To, one, I can't do what I want to do. And two, that I, through whatever reason, having, I was having conflict with, uh, with management, we'll call it, <laughs> uh, that it was time to transition out. Yeah, so that's the story of my, uh, my failed SF, a number of SF attempts. Well, look, mate, everything happens for a reason. And if you had gone to SAS, who knows where your career and succeeded, I mean, who knows where your career would have gone then, but you certainly wouldn't have been involved in Darapet. And your life is not defined by that day, but it is a life changing day. And so you would have gone down a very different course. Look, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've got a pass as well, let's be honest. But uh, <laughs> it would have been, you know, again, I don't look back at things. Things happen sometimes for a reason. So I wouldn't be here today, wouldn't be talking to you. So. And also with the injuries, I mean, for anyone who's physically active in the second half of their 20s, injuries increase, recovery time increases exponentially. And if you're army, infantry, even more so, I bet. <laughs> now the point where I'm approaching 40, mate, I don't know where the last 10 years has gone. And uh, I'm in that process now of approaching Department of Veteran Affairs to go, I need a few surgeries to sort me out. So <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm again thankful I've got no back injuries. I know so many infantry guys have back and knee problems, but I've, I've just got the knee problems. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Let's come back to why we're talking today. Courage under fire. I'm going to read a line from page three of your book. So no spoilers. After I found out I was going to receive the Victoria Cross for Australia, the Australian Defence Force did a pretty good job of whitewashing my family background. You say that you had a new legend, as spies call their cover story. So this book goes into the how and why of all that and the consequences. And it fooled me. There was plenty I didn't know about you in our last podcast that the book now reveals. Considering all that whitewashing, I have to ask, between, I don't know, sort of those couple of years ago and the guard you had up over the full story of your past, what changed? What made you decide to do a book and reveal this all? My dad passed away. So he was sick uh, with cancer. He, he passed away this year, in fact. And so I think that was that was one of the reasons where he was no longer in my life. And I think it enabled me to be a bit freer. And I, I started the process before he had passed away. We knew it was terminal. We knew he was on the way out. I did it, I think, as well to shine a bit of light on my upbringing because I never talk about it. I don't, I've never spoken about it to anyone at all. And I wouldn't say defence completely whitewashed it. However, it was just a, if you can imagine a pool and there's lanes for, you know, that will stay in this lane here and we won't, we won't worry about those other lanes of my life and what's occurred. So I would say that my dad getting sick was the start of that process. There's a little bit of pressure from a number of individuals over the years. You weren't one of them to write a book and we did that podcast and remained in contact. So, you know, obviously that was that was how this all came about. And I am thankful for that opportunity to work with you and your team at, at Pam McMillan. So I look, I think it was just time for me to be truthful about where I'd come from and what I'd been through. To an extent, obviously, it's always, I always still hold a little bit back, mate. I think I always will. But uh, there's a fair bit there in, in Courage Under Fire to give a pretty good indication of what it was like as, as a kid where I grew up and, and the experiences that I've had. Well, you mentioned earlier you're passionate about talking about resilience, for example. And I think by putting your life out there, although it's a big thing to do, it's also going, this is actually me. This is what I stand for. And I can talk to you about all this interesting aspects of my life as well, not just some day I did a few brave things. Absolutely. I keep on going back to that one day won't define me. And look at this, why we've decided to write a book as well. People want to know about the VC. People want to know about the actions. Those are moments in history. So look, I get that. Absolutely understand that, that aspect. I think sharing my so much of my life and, and younger years, it does. It paints that picture. 
it brings it together. It talks about resilience. It talks about the way I am and some of the reasons and some of the, the things that happened in my life to shape me into who I am. So it is an important part of the story. And I'm sure people will get a bit of a laugh, as you said, about some of the things I got up to, blowing the chook house up and, and other things. But look, <laughs> there's, there's, there is plenty of, I suppose, funny things in, in the start of that, in the start of my life. And today here I am sitting in Brisbane in my house, in my office, and think about some of the things I've been through since receiving the VC and beforehand. For me, it's just my life. And I think it's you know, relatively normal, but from the outside, I think people look at it and go, well, you've done a lot the few years you've been on this earth. I don't look at it like that. Whatever comes up next, I'll, I'll tackle, I'll have a crack. I think that's, that's what I've always done and will continue to do, whether I'm successful or not. I think just having a go is the important part. You are very much a looking ahead, what's next, what's the next challenge, what else can I put my mind to kind of person. Did it go against your nature a bit, I guess, to go down memory lane, to put all this on the page? How did you find putting the book together, that process? Look, it was tough to start with. It was really hard to, one, to know what to include. It was really tough to go, well, how much of myself do I put out there? Everything in there is truthful. If anything, I've played down some behavior with my dad, an example of that. Yeah, I'm happy to share this with you and your listeners today is, you know, there was a, there's an aspect of the book there where my dad's been uh, just an absolute ass and, and, you know, there's a massive domestic violence scenario going on. And my sister told me what he'd said to her that day that kicked it all off. And he said to her, you should have been an abortion. So that's to a teenage girl. That's what my dad said to her. And obviously my mum had overheard that. So that's the type of human and person that he was. I'm sharing that with you today, but I haven't sort of included that in the book. It wasn't great, but I've overcome that aspect of my life. And, you know, today, as I said, moved on from that. And then looking back at all those stories, I, I sort of thought, wow, I could have ended up a, a certainly different person to what I have, certainly with his influence, I suppose, at a young age or younger age in my teenage years. The process has been, I've enjoyed it, certainly taking a trip down memory lane and thinking of all of the things that I've done and got up to and experienced. I certainly don't regret anything that I've done to this point in my life. Let's catch up, Dan. What are you up to today? When we last spoke on Mike, you were still studying with uh, Queensland University Technology. What are you up to now career-wise and how'd your studies go? The study at QT, wow. Now that was a challenge. That was a challenge. The study itself was fine, but I had uh, had my son, Jack, at that point in time as well, manage being a dad as well as trying to study. And unfortunately, I'd separated from my now ex-wife at that point in time as well. So I had a lot of moving parts going on in my life. I have finished and, and this year I had to defer two units. I ended up getting bloody sick, unfortunately. I went to London and then went to PNG and did Kokoda and somewhere along the line, I picked up glandular fever. So that knocked me around a bit during my study and I had to defer to units, which I started and completed this year, law and, and data. It's great two subjects to have at once. <laughs> COVID kicked off this year and, and then here I am trying to study via Zoom and, and finish those two subjects off. And I did. So I've now successfully completed my master's in business. So done happy to have that. I've got the certificate now. I've just got to put it on the wall. It's in the process of getting framed. I think that for me was a decision to go, well, I'm sort of moving in that professionally moving in the business world now. I wanted that background. I'm, I don't just have a Victoria Cross. So I now have some, some education behind myself and, and to back that up as well and some frameworks and knowledge. So look, I think it was an important thing for me to complete and do. Very grateful to have that opportunity to be able to do that. I know so many people don't and to be able to afford that opportunity to go and study as well. I'm now working for TELUS Australia, so defence industry, as an account manager. I've gone from a kid from the bush to defence to now working in you know, a position where I have the opportunity to shape the future of small arms or you know, defence industry, I'll say equipment generally for our serving men and women on the Australian Defence Force. So I'm very, again, very fortunate to have been given that opportunity and did start from having the Victoria Cross, but 
from day one, I've, I've always made it very clear with what I'm doing professionally that you know, that is a, a separate part of my life, if you will. And uh, I'm here as an employee and a, and a professional to work. So between full-time work and finishing off those studies and glandular fever, as your editor, I'm really impressed you got most of your deadlines on time with the book as well this year. I got most of it except for today. I rocked up late today, mate, so sorry. But I, I did. I think I got I got most of them, didn't I? I mean, you had to harass yeah, yeah. me a little bit. Not too much. Not too much. <laughs> Look, Dan, let's close out with a big theme of the book. And that big theme is based on a lesson that came from your grandfather. You must find out what you stand for. The Battle of Derapet was 10 years ago, and at the time, you showed through your actions what you stood for then. Today, what does Dan Kieran stand for? You're right. So my grandfather said who you are as a person and what you represent, yeah, and what you stand for. And he was talking about your personal life, ethos and core values. I still look back at his words of wisdom when I was 17, and, and I didn't understand what he meant at that point in time in my life. I really didn't. And I look back now and I think what it means for to me and it still means to this day is that for me, you have to have a go. You have to work hard. Your personal ethos or core values underpins who you are as a person, your building blocks. For me, I'm, I'm that bloke that will, will have a go, will have a crack that is approachable. I may not appear that way, but I, I am. I am a bit of an introvert. So that's probably what, you, what you're sensing if you don't think I'm approachable. But it is. I, I am that person that, that is still that kid from the bush. So that's, that's what I stand for today, mate. Well, Dan, it's been nice to chat today about something other than a deadline or editorial query. (laughs) And look, mate, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to work on your book. I am grateful for the opportunity to work with you. Thank you for that. And thanks for coming back on Life on the Line to talk to me about it. Mate, pleasure. Pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. I'm also speaking today with retired Major General John Cantwell, AODSC. Angus Horden spoke to John in a two-part interview earlier this season in number 82, John Cantwell, Volume 1. Only to be uh, shot at and cut off and pushed into enemy territory and found myself on the wrong side of the enemy lines, surrounded by Iraqis in the middle of the night with a British tank organisation busily attacking them with me in the middle of it. Meanwhile, American helicopters were trying to shoot me with missiles. And Volume 2. There are ways to tackle this damn thing, this PTSD. And uh, it's important that people know that there are others who have been through something like that. John Cantwell was the commanding officer of all Australian forces in the Middle East in 2010. I brought him back on the show, not just for his perspective on the Battle of Derapet, but for the important part he plays in Dan's story. This is my catch up with John. John Cantwell, welcome back to Life on the Line. Thanks very much, Alex. Lovely to be with you again. John, can you please share with me your memories of 24 August 2010? Yes, that was a a very uh, busy, a very intense and sad day in many ways. It was uh, the occasion of a battle in uh, the western part of the province of Arasgan, for which we were responsible. Uh, The Australian Task Force had its focus in that area. Mentoring Task Force 1 found itself in a pretty intense firefight around the village of Derapet. I happened to be at the Ford operating base at Tarrant that day and in the command post along with the uh, MTF-1 hierarchy, the commanding officer and his staff, and listening as uh, what had been predicted to be a fairly tense patrol into an area known to be very likely to be contested by the Taliban. The expectations were realised when, uh, firstly, uh, we heard a message that troops were in contact, TIC, and then that TIC continued and developed 
and uh, it was quite something to listen to this unfolding over the radio. Of course, you're only hearing it, you know, second, third hand, but that tense atmosphere was uh, something that I remember very well. The engagement lasts some hours as well, so I can only imagine being in that room, listening to all that go off, and you're only getting portions of information from one side. Those minutes must feel like hours, and those hours feel like days. It was certainly a tense time, as I've remarked. There was a degree of concern about the escalating nature of the conflict. We continued to hear of more and more Taliban being involved. The commanding officer and his team were very busy listening to what was going on, trying to synchronise support for them, ensuring that necessary fire support was being arranged for them. We became concerned about the potential for casualties, and so a number of organisations were being prepped to uh, get some casualty evacuation underway. And then, of course, we heard the awful news that there'd been an incident that uh, one of the uh, Australians had been hit. We didn't know initially what that was, but within a moment or three of the initial report, word came through that Jared McKinney had been killed. He wasn't named at that time. We just knew there was one soldier killed in action. You could just feel that sudden, oh no, sort of feeling right around the command post. I I felt really, uh, you know, sick at heart, of course. I had already telephoned my boss back in Australia as the contact was ramping up to tell uh, General Mark Evans that we had a really significant tick underway. A little while later, when we had confirmation that we'd had a KIA, I rang him again with the news to let him know. And then, of course, that activated the, uh, the various reporting chains back in Australia. So it was a very tense, it was a sad day. Yet at the same time, you could hear that this was a really, really tough fight. You could just hear it over the radio. It was quite, uh, quite something to be able to witness. Well, John, that day is marked by tragedy with the death of Jared McKinney, as you've said. But it's also marked by great heroism. It must have been such a relief when the troops got back to base and you started to hear about the wonderful deeds that they performed. That's absolutely right. I spoke to the commanding officer of the mentoring task force that evening, who had by then been talking directly to the blokes in the operating base from which the uh, patrol had been mounted. And word was coming back about how intense it was, the extraordinary numbers of enemy combatants involved. And whereas they expected, you know, maybe a couple of dozen, it appeared that there had been as many as 100 at that stage. And that was really quite remarkable. There was also many reports of just how exhausted the men were. They were apparently just on their last legs by the time they got back into the patrol base. But the thing that really came through from his conversation with me and with him directly to the blokes who were involved was there had been some pretty amazing acts of bravery. I acknowledge that. I think I said something like, I'm not surprised, you know, what a great bunch of fighting men they are. And let's talk some more in the coming days about uh, maybe whether there's some awards for bravery need to be considered. So uh, we flagged pretty early on that we might have some occurrences that deserve particular recognition. And uh, we followed that up a week or two later with some more formalised discussions. 
We talked about several aspects of the uh, activity. There were some remarkable acts of bravery going on down in the low ground as well during that uh, fight where the ambush had been sprung and uh, a number of the Australians had acted quite remarkably. And indeed, a couple of high awards went to the uh, well-deserved recipients for that reward. But we also, of course, spoke about Dan Kieran. Now, I don't think I had met Dan at that stage, but I'd heard his name mentioned previously just as a, a really good section commander, a really good NCO, a really good mentor, and that was his particular role at that time. I was aware of Dan as a as a bit of a presence and a bit of a, a forceful character in terms of his um, leadership and ability. As soon as uh, this was mentioned, it, it sort of, I thought, oh, well, okay, that's no great surprise. I've heard this guy's name and I'd heard he was a, a really good hand. When the nature of his action was described to me by the CO, I, it was just like hearing one of those remarkable accounts of awards that you just, you hear it and you go, hell yes, that's extraordinary. And I very quickly, you know, raised the issue with him. Do you think this is something that would warrant the Victoria Cross? We both mulled this over for a little while. We talked it through. I asked them, him to start thinking seriously about developing a citation along those lines. We left that for a little while. As I recall, I then started to run the idea past my chain of command back through Canberra. There was some discussion, and that's appropriate. It is such a prestigious award. There's no place for casual awarding of the Victoria Cross. It is as serious as it gets when it comes to a nomination. So it had to be one that we were certain would stand scrutiny. And so I was very conscious, having already had some experience in the process because of um, previous award to Ben Robert Smith, of just how this would go. So I had quite a few discussions back and forth with my boss. We basically wargamed the wording and how it might go. In the end, I determined to make the recommendation at the higher level. And having talked with his commanding officer about that, we were in absolute accord on that matter. Subsequently, uh, we made the submission. As is always the case, I had the opportunity to review the uh, nomination. I made a few uh, changes to the nomination only because I was better aware of how the wording would need to be placed. There's a way that these things are expressed to tell the truth, absolutely tell the truth in a way that convinces everyone who would read this down the years in the future that it was so thoroughly deserved. So a few minor modifications, but at the heart of it stood a remarkable act of bravery, not just one occasion, but multiple occasions over an extended period of time. And so the submission was made. It was uh, processed through our um, normal chains of command back to Canberra. Before we leave Afghanistan, after the Battle of Derapas, when you're hearing about this great talented section commander, which is a role you'll have an appreciation for, as although you're a major general in 2010, you started out as a private and worked your way up through the ranks and then commissioned. So you have that background of leading the troops at the NCO level. Once you hear about the actions that Dan performed, did you get to meet him in the field and take the measure of the man yourself? Or did you more come to know him after the tour? Look, I'm certain that I did um, get out to the patrol base fairly soon after that. I still am not absolutely certain I got to the little fort that they uh, occupied, but I know I got to meet Dan and a number of his other fellows and subsequently 
it gave me a great pleasure to get out to these patrol bases and spend time with the diggers. And it was like a little island of Australian military prowess, these little tiny communities of, uh, you know, sandbags, Hessian bags, the rock-filled cages, the protected barriers. And inside was this bunch of ragged, pretty scruffy-looking, usually long-haired, quite often unshaven and even a bit dirty diggers who were just the most amazing Australians. And Dan and his fellows were no different in that regard. They were never going to pass any RSM's parade ground test, but what shone out of them was a real sense of determination just to keep going with the mission. Pragmatic, they absolutely didn't see this as some sort of victory lap. They knew this was a tough and long fight. They were very good at working with their Afghanistan counterparts, particularly so in all of my interactions with Dan and his crew and with all the other soldiers there. It was a remarkably humbling experience. I loved being with them. I just wish that I could take those times and somehow bottle them up and show them to every Australian. And at times when we have doubts about our national character, when we question our social structures and our tolerance and justice of our society, and there are those, it seems, who are determined to continually attack the Australian character and our history, I just wish they could see how wonderful Australians can be at really tough times. I think we spend too much time navel-gazing and, and pillaring ourselves. We need to celebrate amazing, strong characters in our society. And Dan Kieran and so many like him in the military and in other walks of life, like our emergency responders, our nurses and fireys and policemen and others. You know, we are so, so lucky to have so many wonderful, wonderful, amazing, strong, brave, selfless individuals in our society. And I'm very proud to have had a little bit of a shoulder rub with Dan and others like him. The Battle of Derapet occurs in August 2010. But Dan does not receive his award until November 2012. Were you left wondering what happened with your nomination? The following year, when um, honours and awards uh, started coming around, I must say I was surprised to see that Dan didn't get a mention. And then particularly when a couple of the other fellows who were recognised for that battle received their awards, I was privileged to uh, go to uh, Government House here in Queensland to witness those awards. I heard from the commanding officer at the time, who was uh, uh, Colonel Mark Jennings, and he uh, was a bit puzzled. I believe I said something to the effect that, look, these things take time. It's a, it's a very prestigious award. And it just kept rolling on. And then the sort of mid-year came around and nothing had happened. And eventually, Mark Jennings himself came to me and said, boss, what's going on? We've sort of lost track of Dan Kieran's award. By that time, I had left the army very early in my own retirement. Mark Jennings got in contact with the relevant authorities in Canberra, obtained the agreement of the senior people involved, the three-star, who was in charge of joint operations, and it became clear that the nomination had been mislaid. It just sounds extraordinary. It is hard to believe, but look, bureaucracies work the way they do. Things go astray. I've got no doubt that it wasn't, you know, anything to do with people being stupid or malicious or nasty. It's just an oversight. And what is pleasing is that as soon as the oversight was recognised, everyone just said, bloody hell, this is ridiculous. Sort this out ASAP. I was then invited to re-sign the paperwork. It was all resubmitted and um, it was promptly dealt with. It's to Dan's great credit that he never took that too seriously. He, he sort of scratched his head a bit 
that someone could lose a uh, uh, or misplace or forget to process something like a Victoria Cross nomination. It's the measure of the man that he accepted that was just human error. He was very, very proud and humble to get his award and he's never really complained in any way. I'm embarrassed about it to an extent as well. I did all sorts of checks afterwards to find out what had happened. The important thing is that an act of extraordinary valour was properly recognised and Dan joins a very, very elite group. You're right, the story of the missing Victoria Cross is rather amusing. It's a bit more conspicuous too because, as you commented, you also signed off on Ben Robert Smith's award in the same year, yet there's a two-year separation in the awarding of it. But at the end of the day, Dan received it, got to have that moment with the then-Governor-General Quentin Bryce pinning the Victoria Cross on his chest and thus changes his life forever in really remarkable ways. And John, your part in Dan's story is an important one. It helped turn him from one of those scruffy lads who wouldn't pass an RSM's inspection, as you said, to scrubbing up quite nicely as he wears his dress uniform with great humility, with a Victoria Cross now pinned on it. That medal, that recognition of his service, and also the service of 6RAR and the team at Derapet that day, not just Dan, but the men he was fighting alongside, has all culminated in his wonderful autobiography, I Say With Great Bias, Courage Under Fire. Thank you for being involved in the reading of that and your commentary. It's a great book. It really is. It casts a light on a, uh, on a real character. You know, well, it comes from a, a tough background, but determined to make his own way in the world. It shows him as he is in, in a very accurate way. He's a quiet, unflustered, determined Australian fellow. And uh, I think he's, uh, he's a great bloke. He's very confident. The first time we met after I'd got out of the army, whereas many of my former soldiers sort of still continued to uh, call me sir or treat me some, some deference or boss, Dan was straight up. He said, hey, g'day, John, how you going? And I thought that's just terrific. Here's a bloke who doesn't stand on ceremony. And uh, he was confident and I was delighted to have, uh, have him be so confident and familiar with me. I thought it was just a really nice thing. So he's a great bloke. His story is wonderful. It should be read by every Australian. We need a bit of uplifting. We need a bit of uh, encouragement. We need to show Australians are pretty special people in, uh, in difficult times. And uh, this book is a great reminder of that. I'm very proud to have a tiny part in getting it into the public arena. John Cantwell, thank you for coming back on Life on the Line. You're very welcome, Alex. All the very best to you and all your listeners. More of that music in just a moment. Those were my conversations with Dan Kieran VC and John Cantwell. Dan's autobiography, Courage Under Fire, is the life story of an amazing Australian. I encourage everyone listening to go buy your copy today. It's out now in print, ebook, and audiobook. You can follow Dan on Instagram by searching his name, and you can follow this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. In honor of Dan Kieran and his Bush Kid upbringing, Today's closing music is Bush Ranger Rock by The Externals, an Aussie SAS original rock band. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget. This is a song pumping on your radio. Better cause it doesn't have a video. You can hear and feel it in our frequency. A rocking soundtrack of life, sustaining energy. The rhythm is big. 
Soundtrack flow. 